Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Office Hours. It is September 10th. My name's David Cole, and I'm here with board runner and co-host extraordinaire Cheyenne Homan and our first guest today, Dr. Buck Ryan from the School of Journalism. How you doing, Dr. Ryan? Good, David. How about you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. So, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, let's get right into it. First thing I want to ask you about is... Um, Constitution Day. Now, I think it's very safe to say that the celebration of Constitution Day at the University of Kentucky is your pet project. You've been doing it for how long now? This will be our 11th uh, year. Awesome, awesome. So over a decade. That is a lot of constitutional knowledge here at the University of Kentucky. So how did the idea to bring a celebration of Constitution Day to campus, like, how did that come about? Well, it was federally mandated by Congress, so that always gets your attention. Uh, the great senator from West Virginia, Robert C. Byrd, who used to carry a pocket constitution with him, worked into a piece of legislation that if you, like the University of Kentucky, received federal funding, you must, I repeat, must celebrate Constitution Day. Now, Constitution Day is September 17th in line with the historical moment of the signing of the uh, Constitution. Federal legislation gives you a little leeway uh, so that if you don't have a celebration on that particular day, then it needs to happen somewhere within a week's period. The senator, and I think rightly so, felt that uh, young people were losing their grasp of the U.S. Constitution and that in that way democracy was at, at risk. So by forcing agencies that received federal funding uh, to celebrate Constitution, it's counterintuitive to the First Amendment of freedom, right? But still, uh, I think it's a good idea. That's really cool. So I've heard that this year, Constitution Day is extending into Constitution Week. Can you tell us a bit about that? I would say that over the years, we have indeed focused on one day of free apple pie. And because everybody loves pie, uh, this event has extended over uh, multiple days. At the same time, we have an honors program class in charge of organizing um, a Tuesday, September 17th event from 11 to 1 on the north lawn of the main building. So if you can picture the Buell Armory right across from the armory on that lawn, the honor students on that Tuesday will orchestrate a really exciting show, including uh, Henry Clay himself, the Wednesday, September 17th, the official Constitution Day will coincide with the celebration of the 100th anniversary of our journalism school. So we had an occasion to extend this 
And then uh, when I was uh, in touch with uh, U.S. Representative Andy Barr's office about joining us on Tuesday, he was going to be on Washington, and he graciously agreed to come on Monday. So on Monday, he's going to speak to my Journalism 101 class uh, in a conversation with U.S. Representative Andy Barr on the Constitution. And everyone's welcome to attend that. That's 10 a.m. on Monday, September 15th, and it's in room 122 of the Whitehall Classroom Building. Well, that'll be quite the event. So uh, I really want to talk about the journalism stuff, and we'll move on to that in a bit. But first, um, you're saying that an honors class is putting together Constitution Day this year. About how many people would you say are on this, like, committee, we'll say, to put together the event? Well, it's a crack team of 21 in the class, uh, along with... Uh, students from last year's honors class that organized not only Constitution Day but for a special election for the state Senate, uh, the one in which uh, Reggie Thomas was elected as the first African-American representing our district here in the state Senate. And that was a, an amazing forum. It included Big Mike as well as Richard Maloney. And I'm trying to think, like, who moderated that? David, can you help me? Can you think back to who was it in the Cat's Den who did such a brilliant job of moderating that uh, debate? I believe that it may have been one David Cole who it was you put it on it a was resume. you yeah so don't ask me questions like that <laughs> you know the answer uh, and uh, so uh, the uh, uh, some of the alums from your class uh, Toria Osborne Austin Sprinkles uh, the amazing Stephanie Driscoll they took our research project and turned it into a poster presentation for the National Conference on Undergraduate Research. So UK was the host of this National Conference on Undergraduate Research, and your classmates mm -hmm. uh, not only presented at that conference but decided to help me again this, this uh, semester. So 21... Um, Students plus uh, three from last plus uh, Buck uh, equals uh, uh, really a fun group of people. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on from Constitution Day for a bit, you bring up the uh, class and the forum last year, and part of this research project that was presented was called Ballot Bomb, uh, Exploring the Young Voter Explosion, correct? Oh, boy, thank you for that because... KET has given us an air date of um, Monday, October 20th in prime time for a half-hour program that um, uh, tests the question of whether young voters can swing the U.S. Senate race in Kentucky. Now, the U.S. Senate race is considered to be the most watched election in the country right now and whether the great senator uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican, will be reelected for another term. He came in with the Reagan Revolution in uh, 1984, so we're talking about 30 years ago our, our senator was uh, elected. 
And um, Alison Lundergan-Grimes, uh, the Democratic Secretary of State, uh, at, at 35 years old, half his age, um, she's the youngest secretary, woman secretary of state in the, in the country. That, that tends to be the way it's framed up, but there is a libertarian candidate, and our research with the young voters showed that they tend to be independent, and they tend to be leaning maybe libertarian. So David Patterson, who's um, a peace officer in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, he is also uh, on that ballot. And you may remember David Patterson from our Constitution Day last year. Stephanie Driscoll was in touch and delivered uh, David Patterson to our event. Do you remember him? Yes, I do. Do you remember the gun on his belt? Nope, must black that I out. I do remember <laughs> that. I do remember that. And of course, as a peace officer and also somebody who feels strongly about Second Amendment uh, rights, it was quite a scene as we had the little kids uh, singing patriotic songs. I looked down and saw the uh, gun in the holster of, of <laughs> David Peterson. Now, uh, you know, uh, only in Kentucky uh, would I say this does not stop there because there are three write-in candidates who have also emerged in this race. So part of the Citizen Kentucky project designed to engage young people in civic life is to try to put them in direct touch with candidates and to have them understand that journalists tend to frame things in terms of conflict and they try to get it down to two. And so what we do is help students understand that there are more options than you may just see if you're following the news. All right, all right. Um, talking about this documentary that you're saying is going to be airing, what exactly is that going to consist of? Like, what do we see if we tune in and watch the ballot bomb program well uh it starts <laughs> with the uh, fuse pss, and then the explosion oh. and out of that is my then 18 year old son chasing down uh secretary of state ellison uh lundergan grimes at fancy Farms, saying miss grimes miss grimes what's your message to young voters so that's the way uh the promo will open the program will also open because I am no longer young, my son, who's now 19, is co-host for this program. So he has interviewed Senator McConnell. He sat down with uh, David Patterson. We're still trying to work out with um, Allison's campaign a time to to get that uh, third interview. But the but the key question in there is, what is your message for young voters? But because it's Kentucky Educational Television, we're going to take a, a step back from there and talk about some research about young voters nationally and in, in Kentucky, and also some of our research results from the Honors Program on how young people come to public judgment. You may remember that you had to journal, keep a journal when you were in my honors class. And, and how are you deciding which candidate to support for the U.S. Senate uh, race? So we're going to do some debriefing there, offer suggestions to the candidates on how they can engage young readers, uh, offer some advice to journalists uh, to stop the relentless pursuit of negativity, 
conflict, often trumped-up conflict, horse race, who's ahead in the polls, who's, who's you know, ahead in fundraising, and yet serious public problems go unaddressed because there isn't public deliberation of citizens coming together with their elected officials to solve these problems. So we have advice for um, journalists in the program. And lastly, we have advice for uh, educators because it's clear that Kentucky needs more civic education. It's, it's very interesting. Now, um, I think we're coming up on a break, but before we uh, get there, I would like to ask, um, this concept of coming to public judgment is a very interesting one. And if I remember correctly, and I hope I do, since this is basically a trial at this point, um, is all about coming out, being very public with your political opinions. Do you say that's a fair tight synopsis of what we're looking at here? The the phrase coming to public judgment is uh, the title of a book by Daniel Yankelovich. And so Yankelovich has come up with stages in which he's seen people come to judgment and peoples, a society coming to public judgment. So we try to match what the scholar believes is the way someone decides a big issue and then layer it back on the individual journals of students to see whether Yankelovich was um, resonating or not. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so I think we're going to go to a break. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL 88.1. We'll be right back with Dr. Ryan. Hello and welcome back to Office Hours. My name is David Cole. I'm here with co-host and board runner extraordinaire Cheyenne Homan and our guest today, Dr. Buck Ryan of the School of Journalism. Dr. Ryan, thank you for coming to the show again. And uh, before the break, we talked about Constitution Day. We talked about your honors classes, some of the stuff you're doing last year, a documentary on KET, all sorts of cool stuff. But now... I want to talk a little bit more about uh, you personally. Now, you're not only a part of the journalism school. You are the head of the journalism school, correct? Well, I, I was. I was the eighth director in the 100-year history of our journalism school. Uh, I'm the director of the Citizen Kentucky Project of the Scripps Howard First Amendment Center. But the uh, mighty, uh, incredible, the amazing Beth Barnes is the um, director of our School of Journalism and Telecommunications. Hmm. All right. All right. So what was your tenure at the journalism school as a director? Uh, eight years. Uh, so I would have come 20 years ago. It would have been the fall of 1994 out of uh, Chicago and uh, Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism to become director of the journalism school. And at that time, um, our program was um, facing reaccreditation. So I had to uh, hit the floor uh, very quickly to begin to find the story of our uh, school and be able to tell it to the accrediting uh, agency. We got unanimous votes and, uh, and we were uh, on to good things. Now, something that you've got to your name is this journalistic concept called the maestro concept. Can you explain to our listeners and me um, a little bit about 
what that is exactly. The Maestro concept is a story planning process that was used by newspapers to begin to transform uh, who did what when in the process of going from story idea to paper. It was an experiment at a small newspaper in Logansport, Indiana. And the results was that every staff member and two former staff members had won awards. They actually spent less money on uh, gas mileage reimbursement for their photographers and other measures of success. It was a case study that I turned into a report and video for the American Society of Newspaper Editors in 1993. And so that concept is something that I have uh, tested uh, in many countries around the world, and it's curious to me how this American model of journalism echoes through countries, um, communist and otherwise. Now, this maestro concept that you've demonstrated around the world, as you said, you've shown off in countries... Russia is the first one that comes to my mind that was um, in this article that we ran here at UK not that long ago. But um, I, I think it would be really cool to hear one of your stories from your time in Russia. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your time over there? Yeah, in 2010, I was in three time zones in two weeks. So I was coming back to Moscow relentlessly because to travel in, in Russia, that really is the hub. But I went to uh, Kirov uh, in the n north there, Rostov-on-Don in the south in the Caucasus, and then into Siberia and to Barnol uh, to work with uh, journalists, to speak at conferences, to um, demonstrate that maestro method. Uh, just within this week, I had seen uh, from a Facebook uh, friend uh, how she and her consulting in, in Russia with a television station is, is uh, adopted it as well. So it's become a multimedia story planning process now in, in Russia and other places. Fascinating. So you said before that you were now the director of the Scripps Howard Center's uh, First Amendment Center, sorry, the uh, Citizen Kentucky Project. What exactly is the Citizen Kentucky Project? It is uh, a project that's designed to engage young people in civic life, and the origin of it really was coming off of sabbatical in uh, 2001, in which I did a KET program called Citizen Kentucky democracy and the media. And it was during sabbatical that I had the, uh, this epiphany that for 25 years I had been focusing on journalism and thinking that that was the problem. And maybe the problem was higher education. Maybe the problem was that colleges and universities don't live up to the rhetoric of graduating good citizens for a democracy. And that if universities took that seriously, and actually graduated good citizens for democracy, they would be reading newspapers, they would be following the news, they would be engaged in public uh, pro problem solving. And so I turned uh, my focus from journalism to the people. And uh, there's a scholar, Jay Rosen, at New York University, 
who wrote a book called What Are Journalists For? You may remember that as required reading, David. There's yeah, going to be, it's, this is going to be on the final exam. I just <laughs> want you to know when we wind down this program. But Jay Rosen's um, <coughs> work it was summarized by um, a legendary newspaper editor, Cole Campbell, as the people, the press, and public life, the interconnections. He talked about the Rosen Triangle of the people, how good are the citizens, the press, how good are the journalists, and public life, how good are the candidates. And it was my conclusion that we're one big dysfunctional family, that uh, people are, are turned off, they're cynical, they're not engaged uh, with, what's, with what's going on. The press, unfortunately, now has suffered devastating budget and budget cuts and is strapped. Um, the candidates, and this goes back to uh, Daniel Yankelovich, who indicts the rise of the expert against the people, but the candidates have political handlers who keep them away from the people as a strategy to be reelected or to be elected. and. Those candidates may win, but what loses uh, is really democracy, is, is, is people coming together to solve very serious public problems. So if we are one big dysfunctional family, you, you would say that I'm the um, civic marriage counselor. I am the one who's trying to bring the people, particularly young people, into the game to work with journalists, maybe to experiment with different methods to be the friend of candidates, and I admire all these people who run f for office and try to change the relationships. That's some, that's some really admirable work, but um, what kind of activities is, is the Citizen Kentucky Project involved in uh, along with the celebration of Constitution Day? Typically, we'll align it with elections, and so right now we're in the middle of uh, a mayor's race in Lexington, so the focus on uh, Tuesday, September 15th, or excuse me, Tuesday, September 16th, 11 to 1, on the north lawn of the main building, is to invite uh, our two candidates for mayor to, uh, to talk about the importance of the Constitution. And, and Jim Gray is somebody that I've, I've known over 12 years when he originally had run for mayor unsuccessfully. And so he was somebody who attended Citizen Kentucky uh, forums, and so I've known him for a long time. Anthony Beatty, the former police chief in Lexington, who is uh, the opponent um, in, in Lexington, Fayette County, in the charter, uh, it's mandated that this be nonpartisan. So it's not Democrats and Republicans running against each other for mayor. Uh, we have these two candidates through the primary system. Uh, Anthony Beatty, of course, is Assistant Vice President for Public Safety at the University of Kentucky. So uh, we've invited both of those candidates so students can get close to them as they um, think about uh, which candidate they would support on November 4th. Nice, nice. Um, before we go, last question here. Your involvement at the University of Kentucky, Citizen Kentucky Project, Time at the Journalism School, all of this stuff, all the Constitution Days, 
what would you say has been your most positive impact here at UK? Well, uh, I, I would say is something I feel strongly about as a personal accomplishment as opposed to, let's say, measuring my ink impact at UK. You gotta ask other people what they think of me for that one. <laughs> But for me to be recognized as a Kentucky colonel by both a Republican governor, uh, Ernie Fletcher, and a Democratic governor, Steve Bashir, for my work with middle school, high school, and college students in engaging them in civic life is something that uh, I hold quite dear because at the university we must be painstakingly nonpartisan. We, we, we must open our students to the political process, let them decide which way they're going to go. But as someone who is a, a guide for those students, I just hope that um, I've inspired them to get involved and to make the world a better place. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the show again, Dr. Ryan. I, one more time, this is Office Hours. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Office Hours on WRFL 88.1. I'm David Cole, and again, I'm here with board runner extraordinaire Cheyenne Homan and our next guest, Dr. Damaris Hill. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you on. Um, let's get right into it. I want to talk to you about your book, Willows in the Spring. Okay. Well, what would you like to know? <laughs> well, I think that... Um, well, something I guess we should establish before we get into the actual mm -hmm. book is uh, your writing style really connects with jazz. Yes. And I heard you earlier refer to this as jazz writing specifically. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell me what it, what is jazz writing? Well, I approach jazz um, from an artistic aesthetic perspective, but also from a philosophical perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, I apply some of the theories that are familiar with um musical jazz such as the improvisational riff or the repetition of a melody and a counter melody or the fluctuating rhythm and time I actually use them as intellectual principles to apply to my novel so um, the classical form oh, I'm sorry I should say this jazz is a disruption of classical forms of music mm -hmm. the classical form of a novel is an epistolary novel made of letters or diaries and the novel that I'm writing is comprised of letters and diaries, but it's also disrupted by um, intake forms from prison, medical histories, mm -hmm. photos, and other ways of knowing the characters and the story. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna apologize in advance because I'm totally gonna nerd out before this whole interview <laughs> is over. I'm already all over this. Um, I read an excerpt. From Willows in the Spring that I believe you sent to us from uh, the Tidal Basin Review? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you brought it here. Yeah. Uh, we've got here letters, uh, novel excerpts, title page, I suppose. Oh, wow. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about this so that the listeners can look at it. This is, um, or hear about it. Uh, we've got this, um, what is this exactly here? This is a fictional um, intake form for... Uh, juvenile inmates mm -hmm. uh, in Kansas during the 1930s. Mm. So I based it on an actual form, but of course it has been modified. Mm -hmm. um, and what the listeners can't see, but it's important to know, is that I use some of the current technologies um, to play with font size, to play with images, to reappropriate 
traditional historical images from archives into my novel to affirm the story that I'm telling. Mm-hmm. That's super, that's fascinating. <laughs> All right, so just to describe this to the listeners here, we've got, as you said, an intake form. There are many uh, boxes here with uh, bits of information, name of the inmate, nicknames, etc., date of birth. There's also a nice photo, which we unfortunately can't <laughs> get across on air. And uh, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of playing with font. There's different kinds of fonts that look like handwriting. That's cool. But uh, moving forward, can you tell us uh, what exactly, or give us a hint to the narrative of Willows in the Spring? What's the story you're trying to tell? Well, the story I'm trying to tell is that during the 1930s, um, there, there were many um, children or young people that went to prison. Um, and it was a complicated arrangement because we know that the, the nation was economically suffering. And um, some of these uh, criminals that's what I call them, um, some of these criminals have committed um, crimes and have been tried and sentenced to jail. And other young women have been volunteered, either because their parents feel that they cannot control them or their sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is actually uh, the narrative behind the protagonist, Cat. Or they feel that they can't control other aspects of their behavior. Some of them may have been um, volunteered because they cannot control or they cannot um, substantially provide for their children. This is also a time of great flux in American history. We had um, huge deportation sweeps of immigrant populations in the United States. We, it was in between the wars, um, financial struggle, and and we're still pioneering these efforts in trying to cultivate the Plains region, such as Kansas, into the American promised land. And Mm -hmm. so, all of that coupled with some of the national, I'm sorry, natural disasters that happened during that time, along with the national fervor, creates great tensions for the story. Wow, okay. Um, now, outside of just the, the style of mm-hmm. jazz and the uh, interruption mm-hmm. uh, style, could you tell us, uh, does the history of jazz like play into the novel at all? Or? It does. Um, uh, the protagonist that I just spoke about, Cat, uh, her name is Catherine Parrish. Uh, her mother uh, belongs to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, mm-hmm. and that was the organization that supported Carrie Nation in shutting down all of the saloons in Kansas. But Cat, unlike her mother, really enjoys the saloons with the illegal alcohol and the jazz music that accompanies them. And her, along with um, a cousin and friend, they often sneak out um, to to jazz venues. And Kansas City is a huge mecca of jazz. Um, During that time of the 30s, during the performing arts, you would have um, traveling artists. But Kansas City was actually the last stop before Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So anybody that was a big name would would tour the East Coast, maybe the Northern and Southern Belt, and then come through Kansas City before they would ultimately go to Hollywood. And they would stop in Kansas City, and and St. Louis was more of a blues town, but Kansas City was known for its jazz. Um, Charlie Parker is from Kansas City, and actually the bebop style of jazz is said to be um, originated in that area. Now, 
what time period is this novel set during? 1930s. 1930s. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see, now you may not be able to reveal this, mm-hmm. but are we going to see any historical cameos of like famous jazz musicians in the oh, book? Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and we're going to see some of those celebrity gangsters um, being referred to in the book. Because uh, something that happens with the letters or why the epistolary form is so important is because I think um, the silo of the prison in order to talk about the, um, the criminals and their desires has to be weighted against popular culture. Mm-hmm. And so the letters allow that information to transfer in and out. So in communicating with their friends or um, their family members, they become aware of some of the events that are happening outside of the prison. And then that information is usually a type of currency among the the girls there in the prison. I have um, a criminal Marisol who has to look like a Hollywood movie star. And her whole um, identity in the prison is that she she has like makeshift ways of creating cosmetics. Mm-hmm. And then someone else who wants to be a doctor has become a type of herbalist in that space and is trying to reconcile um, medical knowledge with um, homeopath on, homeopathy mm-hmm. and that um, orientation to knowledge that she learned before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds very interesting and oh, in-depth, super, super in-depth. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and then we'll come back and talk to you about inspirations. All right, great. (laughs) Thank you. That was Sarah Vaughn's Ain't Misbehaving, and we're here in the studio on Office Hours with David Cole, interviewer extraordinaire, and uh, Dr. Damaris Hill, uh, who has written a book called Willows in the Spring, which we are discussing this afternoon. So, Dr. Hill, I really want to get into like where your inspiration comes from, and we've got a few questions okay. here specifically about that. I think that the the first one we should definitely start off with is uh, the inspiration for Willows in the Spring itself. Where's mm-hmm. that coming from? Well, um, I attended graduate school at the University of Kansas, and in 2008, I moved from Baltimore, Maryland, to Lawrence, Kansas. Um, before I moved to any space. What I do is I read multiple histories and I kind of look for the glitches and the gaps, Mm -hmm. the untold stories, the the blurbs, the mentions, the coughs in the speech. And that's how I discern what the history of the space is and how the space would feel intuitively to me as an artist. And so um, I came across this story about um, Congresswoman Catherine O'Loughlin and um, how she was forced to go in during um, the 30s and correct um, this juvenile prison for women because of some misappropriations. Um, and I started thinking about um, what, what, what a space would be like if it was, um, if it was under the constraints of um, age, right? Mm -hmm. The historical time period, the physical constraints of a prison, um, the physical constraints of, fiscal constraints of resources. And so I started imagining um, this space and I thought it would be a short story, but um, I became kind of obsessed. And so I began looking um, at online archives from the Kansas Historical Society, seeing what else I could dig up about this story, which wasn't much. It was just a blurb. Um, But when I moved to Kansas, 
within three days, I was actually in the archives. Wow. And um, I um, was able to go through the letters of the warden. I was able to go through the private letters of that congresswoman. And the story of this prison began to unfold. And several visits later, I had an opportunity to read the biannual reports of this prison. Um, when I write about escape, I actually look at um, some of the historical maps and archives that were there um, to decide whether if waterways or railways are best to plan an escape. Mm -hmm. And it really allowed me to uh, rem remember or reimagine this space. I ascribe to Toni Morrison's philosophy of remembery. And so I usually take a historical period in space and think about uh, the human condition and how it would be within those constraints. Mm -hmm. Now, something that I think is always the most fun question to ask an artist is mm -hmm. where or what other artists inspire them. Now, you mentioned Toni Morrison just a second ago, but yes. uh, I imagine it's not just writers that inspire you and your no. work. No. Um, I am, as far as just is the history of jazz writing is concerned, Toni Morrison, of course, Ralph Ellison, um, but I'm also very interested in um, the work of Percival Everett mm -hmm. and the work of Gail Jones, um, who both have ties to this area. Um, I'm also extremely inspired by jazz women vocalists. So for me, Ella Fitzgerald, Cassandra Wilson, um, Billie Holiday, um, Anita O'Day, these women are very present in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm using epistolary form, there are approximately maybe about 10 to 12 different voices actually present in the novel. And the way that I keep these voices distinct and um, uniform is that I use inspiration from jazz women vocalists mm -hmm. to reinforce my hearing of the voice. Awesome. So... Um, Again, Kat, the main protagonist, she's uh, rooted in the voice of Anita O'Day. Uh, Melvina, another character, mimics Ella Fitzgerald. Um, the way that I play with time in the novel is indicative of the way Billie Holiday sings. Mm -hmm. um, according to rumor or legend, Billie Holiday was one of the hardest jazz uh, vocalists to play with because she would purposely sing off rhythm. <laughs> And so if you're a musician trying to play off rhythm, it's nearly impossible. It really requires a lot of intellectual and artistic candor to do that. Mm -hmm. And she was able to do that in just about every song. And so I thought about what would it be to put the present, mm -hmm. the past, and the future in a confined space of a letter. And I started playing with that notion. Wow. Are there any last things you'd like to tell listeners about Willows in the Spring? Um, I'm currently shopping for an editor. Um, I do submit portions of the novel to journals. Um, Title Base and Review has a portion. Um, two other portions are being shopped with other journals now. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully we'll, we'll see the book in print soon. All right. One final question for you before we go. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty simple. What else have you written? Um, I also write poetry. I'm working mm -hmm. on a poetry manuscript um, at the same time. Um, yeah, that, that's just the way that I work. Um, 
I've also written pieces of nonfiction that are, are published, and um, I've written one play mm-hmm. to date. Um, I usually pay attention to my subjects and how they evoke the form, um, and I follow that. I think that makes me a better writer listening to the subject rather than trying to control the subject. Makes sense. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Hill. It's thank been you great for having me. You. And uh, we'll cut out. This has been Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. My name is David Cole, and running the board, the extraordinaire. Cheyenne Homan, (laughs) the one and only. Thank you so much, Dr. Hill. This has been a really great, uh, I think, very edifying hour for us. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.